Welcome to part two of Wilding Worship. In our last episode, we explored the unintended consequences of the suburbanization of the church. I called this the domestication of the Lion of Judah, taming God, making God more palatable to a suburban context. The Christian church, palsied and ill-equipped, is perceived as no longer able or interested in responding to a world in need of a savior. As church culture, and especially worship, further distanced itself from the unpredictability of God's character, the more denatured its theology became for its life. How does a suburban church leverage God's unpredictability to speak to a disinterested and suspicious world? In this episode, we will explore a possible response to this predicament a way forward to greater integration and the rewilding of worship. Join me, your host, the Reverend Dr. Jared Yogerst, for the second part of our series in Rewilding Worship, a Post-Contemporary Worship. Today's episode, Raising Consciousness in the Church. Hey there. Thanks for coming again. I take it this means that you're into these lunches together. Great. I am too. I really enjoyed our last lunch together. I'm really happy. Let's take a seat. Within churches and across denominations, a war is raging. We call it the worship wars. I'm not sure how long it's been going. I imagine pretty much ever since music came into the practice of the liturgy, so forever. Paul in Ephesians 5 encourages the Christians there to be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Paul's encouragement here is found within his longer conversation on how members of the body of believers ought to relate to one another, namely that Christians ought to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul's view of the Christian life is seemingly a straight shot from worship to life. The life of the Christian to some extent is formed in the mold of the sacraments and praise to God. It is this realization and understanding that leads me to make a distinction between these worship wars of the past and what I am today calling the rewilding of worship. I am not terribly interested in the separation of liturgical versus contemporary. A music director once commented to me that all songs were at one time contemporary. The argument between these two forms, I contend, is a false narrative. Our departure point should not be which musical form is best, 
Instead, our departure point must be, how has God promised to be present to us? In the Lutheran Church, we call the traditional liturgical form the divine service. It's sort of a double entendre as these services act in two ways. First, the way in which we serve God with praise and sacrifice. The second is the service God provides to us in his promises. In Eastern Christianity, the divine service is the daily series of prayers, what the Western church calls the daily office. In both cases, the role of these liturgical forms is to remind and surround the worshiper with the acts of God. This is opposed to contemporary modes of being church. I'm not speaking of contemporary music here, but instead the way of being community that focuses on the experience of the individual. Its object of concern is the well-being and needs of the individual worshiper. God certainly cares for the experience and well-being of the individual. As C.S. Lewis writes of Christ's willingness to die for each person, if each man had been the only man, God would have done no less. This cultural shift, however, has arrived at its logical conclusion, which is the deference to the individual at the expense of the community. Ergo, the contemporary versus traditional dichotomy at its base is the false belief that through our manipulation of words, habits, or stylistic changes in either direction can make God more effective in the life of the individual. God is active and present in the divine service precisely because God promises to be there. With no active intention on our part, God reconciles us to God. God does not bring himself to our level, but instead, through the activity of Christ's incarnation, brings humanity back to God. It is this belief in the true, real, and promised word of God on which we trust in the effectiveness of the means of grace. It is in, with, and under God's promises that God is present on behalf of humanity. God's rupturing, reconciling activity of dead bodies brought to life is an aesthetic experience. God, the object of this experience, acts upon the subjects, that is, the bodies of persons, bringing dead and broken bodies into God's own life. The life of God, this inhabitable aesthetic experience, is the life of ecstatic asceticism. At our last lunch, I introduced the Eastern Orthodox concept of perichoresis, the dancing and moving interrelationship of the persons of the Trinity. God, in whose image we are created, is a God who is in relationship. That is Yahweh, who is on the move. To me, it is this defining characteristic of God that is active in the divine service. The characteristic that, in the words of Aidan Kavanaugh, rightly ought to make us shiver. 
Luther writes in his Freedom of the Christian, although individual Christians are thereby free from all works, they should nevertheless once again humble themselves in this freedom, take on the form of a servant, be made in human form and found in human vesture, and serve, help, and do everything for their neighbor just as they see God has done and does with them through Christ. For Luther, the broken image of God, of the Christian, is united with the perfect faith and image of Christ. It is by virtue of that uniting of the Christian and Christ that the individual Christian acts. Luther suggests that the Christian acts out as a witness to God's superabundant mercy, both for and through them. The Christian life out in the world is a leveraging of God's grace in acts of mercy and ecstatic asceticism. Luther's pamphlet, May a Christian Rightly Flee a Deadly Plague, is an encouragement towards perseverance in the face of adversity in order to save and protect the other. The defining characteristic of the Christian vocation is to ensure the neighbor has all he needs to survive and even to thrive. Luther makes a distinction between service and self-sacrifice. Luther does not suggest that the Christian ought to needlessly lose her life or property, but rather encourages a discernment of needs of the neighbor and the capacities of the Christian. Could service mean one loses her life to save her neighbor? Of course. But this is not a prediction, but a service in kind. I would call this an ecstatic asceticism. It is ecstatic as, like God's paracritic nature, is moving outward. And it is ascetic because it is an act of prayer. The Christian is propelled by and continuing on Christ's death on the cross. The Christian acts precisely because Christ acted first, out of his own faith in the promises of the Father, promises on which we now stand and act. The leveraging of God's grace requires sure and certain promises, with which our lives waste away in existential dread and despair. As the teacher writes in Ecclesiastes, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. The Christian acts precisely because God's promises are sure and certain. Leveraging grace is like Abraham's certainty, trusting God's promises. In addition to being ecstatic and ascetic, post-contemporary worship is also eschatological. This one is a big word. To put it simply, it is the now but not yet of our salvation, that we are both saint and sinner at the same time. What does that have to do with leveraging grace? I would say it is eschatological precisely because it is ecstatic and ascetic. The asceticism we express in leveraging grace is towards a God who is himself ecstatic. He's on the move. He's dangerous and he is very good. Leveraging grace that is both founded and propelled by the promises of God brings those promises along with it. 
leveraging grace, a post-contemporary worship is ecstatic eschatological asceticism. God is able to act and be effectual anywhere and at any time. God promises to be active, however, at a very specific time and place, through the word and sacrament. The Christian, through her reception of the aesthetic experience of God's life, is propelled into the world to leverage grace in service of the neighbor by her participation in God's life of ecstatic eschatological asceticism. It is first and foremost the event of worship, the reception of God's life in his promises and the time and place at which God promised to be, that the Christian first encounters the rupturing aesthetic experience. How then ought the church, and especially pastors, prepare the Christian for this experience of reception? The Christian's encounter with the aesthetic experience of God's life is the very knee-knocking witness that Aidan Kavanaugh envisaged. God is always present and active when and where God promises to be, namely in word and sacrament. I would argue that the role leaders, pastors, and lay leadership play is to raise the awareness or consciousness of people to what God is already doing in the encounter of worship. Within the world of advocacy, the concept of consciousness raising is the belief that if people are aware of a problem and some possible solutions, they are more likely to support those solutions, whether through allyship, advocacy, or economic support. A pastor's role in worship reception might be then to help Christians be aware of the aesthetic experience of God's life available in the means of grace. Raising the awareness of worshipers to what God is doing in their midst can be multifaceted. It is also necessarily contextual to the community and its habits and the theology of worship. While this conversation is, is multivaried and complex, I would like to suggest three shifts that will begin bringing awareness to one's reception of worship. First, the perspective of the congregational leadership is the basis of any perspective shift towards rewild worship. The acknowledgement of God's rupturing activity in the cross, as well as the act of naming of it as such, is necessary. Shifting how we talk about God's activity is difficult, as we have, as an American church, become used to the domesticated language about God. The countercultural and mystical language of Christianity has been replaced with the language of individualism, consumerism, and nationalism. Returning to the language of the mystery of Christ is itself a countercultural act. I am reminded here of the language of 2 Peter, where Peter states that the life of the Christian is a participation in the divine nature. Or Paul's words in Romans 6 that the Christian in her baptism is united to Christ in the mystery of faith. Or Jesus in the high priestly prayer of John's gospel, Jesus describes the relationship of father, son, and the disciples. 
Jesus here describes a relationship of abiding closeness. The Father and Son are in such a close relationship that they share the same will. The disciples then are invited into that same abiding closeness. Second, provide the people with the language of worship. What I mean by this is educating the people of the church to what worship is and why they do what they do. Providing this historical and theological contextualization provides fluency to the historical arc of the church. The knowledge of how the church got where it is at that locality provides nuance to one's personal location in history and theology. That kind of humble regard for one's own place in the world encourages an elasticity of thinking that is necessary when living in the unpredictability of rewild worship. Knowing where one sits in history allows you to see where you are in relationship to others. That elasticity in the face of converging beliefs and experiences of others avoids the temptation for reactivity. Without elasticity, a person may be more inclined to defensiveness, which breaks down the capacity to be ecstatic in leveraging grace on behalf of the neighbor. Third, rewild worship requires the acknowledgement that God revealed in the cross of Christ is a God who is ecstatic. In our first lunch, I quoted Luther's treatise concerning the holy and most blessed sacrament of Christ's body and blood. In that treatise, Luther states that in the reception of Christ's body and blood, we receive the loving act of God, God's loving act to heal us of our broken image and return us to the state of right relationship with God. It is by the, that reception, writes Luther, of God's free will act to love that the Christian in turn goes out into the world to love the neighbor. As Jesus himself describes, the love of the neighbor is the direct result of one's love of God. Being ecstatic in the world is the logical consequence to the theology of the cross. The cyclical nature of the cross is the realization of one's own failings, the acknowledgement of the need for a savior, the understanding that Christ's death on the cross has done something about that need and the move outward into the world to be ecstatic, just as God himself ecstatically showed his love for humanity on the cross. This is not an all-inclusive list, but can act as a starting point for the journey towards rewilding worship. The domestication of the Lion of Judah ultimately is the apostasy of making a God for ourselves, a God in our own image. The God of this domesticated worship is a God that neither confronts me nor asks me to do too much. Rewilding will not stop us from sinning against the first commandment. It may, however, make us more aware of the knee-knocking encounter into which God invites us. We encounter the aesthetic experience of God's life when God's word of promise ruptures the self turned inward. That dead self that seeks only his own passions is crucified with Christ. Continuing in the reception of God's life, the aesthetic experience moves the Christian from the death on the cross to rising again with Christ on Easter morning. 
rising again with Christ, the Christian is pu pushed outward by the ecstatic and eschatological ministry of Christ into her own life of ecstatic eschatological asceticism. Pastors and church leaders can make an intentional effort to bring to consciousness how God is already at work in word and sacrament. Congregations who begin to rewild worship can bring about a cultural, linguistic, and eventually a behavioral change within their community. God arrives where God has promised to be, in his word and sacraments. The reception of God's life in worship is the knee-knocking encounter with the wild lion of Judah. The lion is not safe, you know, but he is very good. He's the king, you know. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Hangry Philosopher. I'm the Reverend Dr. Jared Yogurst, your host and producer. New episodes posted each Sunday. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Stay curious. Stay hangry. <laughs>